Welcome to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. A person could make the argument that I'm holding in my hands the most valuable thing in the world, in a way. Um, because think of it, if, if we had to get rid of every other thing, let's say I was, I was told I can only keep one thing in my house, what ought it to be? Well, one could make the very strong argument that it ought to be the Bible, because here are the words of God. If I had no other source for them, definitely this would be the thing. Now, of course, these days we can get the Bible. Oh, we can get the Bible on our phone, on our iPad, everywhere. And uh, there's a sense in which, because it has become so ubiquitous around us. Uh, that, once again, familiarity breeds mm -hmm. at least forgetfulness. So it's important for us to develop within our life a discipline or at least a regular schedule or some kind for sharing the Word of God. Welcome to Tulsa Time with Bishop Condorla. My name is Derek Lissy, and I am your host. Bishop, how are you doing today? I'm okay. We're all thawing out after <laughs> the after the deep freeze. Oh man, that was pretty intense. Very cold. So since we last filmed anything, I went to the bishops, the Region Ten Bishops Retreat in Texas, where I came down with COVID uh. in San Antonio, Texas. Had to drive back. Uh, to Tulsa with COVID, I had to leave the retreat early, so I did my ten days of sick and congested and fevered and chills and all that, and then we got hit with this uh, deep freeze, and I think tonight it's supposed to go back down again to seven. So yeah, it is nice day today finally, but good to see the ice melting off the streets. Glad it wasn't as bad as it could have been, because boy, it could have been bad. Oh, yeah. Last year we had, or I guess, it, well, the last time we had this kind of diocesan-wide deep freeze, I think it did something like $600,000 worth of damage across the diocese in terms of broken, mostly broken pipes and flooded carpets and hallways and things like that. Um, so this year, hopefully, much less of that. I know there was some problems at the cathedral, but... I haven't heard of anything anywhere else. So I'll never forget our last deep freeze because it was, you know, it was it was a polar vortex. They were calling it a polar vortex, and not an Arctic blast, I think. But I'll never forget coming to the office, and I was one of the first people in that day. Just happened to be. And I remember looking down the hallway and seeing the exit sign reflecting off the floor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I remember thinking yeah. to myself, "Yeah." That's funny. That's not supposed to. <laughs> That's not supposed to look like that in our in our and part of our fire suppression system had you know flooded or whatever it was. It was yeah. I think it was a broken pipe in the foundation. Yeah, in the concrete. And uh, and I'll never forget that because, mo not even a few moments later, you were in the office in a pair of boots picking books up off of people's off uh, office floors. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know when the the bishops in the office picking up stuff off the floor and trying to keep it from getting wet. You know it's, 
you know it's bad. But anyway, so luckily we didn't. I didn't hear too many horror, yeah. horror stories like that year. But it was. No. But it was it was definitely cold. We're, our family just got back from the from the Focus Conference. The Focus. National oh, conference. you took the whole kids. We took all the kids, okay. and uh, you know they did childcare, and there was about you know. 200 kids in this child care. So oh it's kind of one of those you drop them off and you just stir up all the illnesses or whatever yeah. else is going around. Yeah. Um, from a national level, all these Catholics from around the country <laughs> putting their kids in the same spot. So luckily we've made it out okay, you know, sniffles and things like that. But yeah. If they survive it, they'll be immune to almost <laughs> every living. Bug. That's the idea. <laughs> that is the idea. So, anyways. Well, it is interesting though that. I bet at the first few Sikhs, they didn't have childcare. Mm, for but sure. Because yeah. Focus has matured as an entity, uh, for anyone who doesn't know what Focus is, the Focus Fellowship of Catholic University Students Organization is now an international organization that does tremendously good and valuable work on college campuses by sending young missionaries, people who dedicate a year or two or even more of their life to being trained in how to lead people in discipleship, uh, how to do Bible studies and so forth. They go onto the campus and then they attract people and they go around and talk to people and just That's say, right. would you like to come to our Bible study? And, and uh, that begins relationships. But those missionaries then grow up, and then they get married, and then they have children, and then suddenly focus conference. Focus or... needs a childcare. Oh yeah, option at the conference, which is awesome. Uh, we have focus in at the St. Philip Neri Center in our in our diocese, and at OSU, and now also at Christ the King. So one of the parish based focus. That's right. What we might call experiments is going on at Christ the King, and then also now in the hospital, St. Francis Saint Hospital. Francis hospital as well. So that's brand new. This this uh, sort of outreach of focus mm -hmm. to hospital settings Kinda is brand neat. new. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I suppose in a way it fits with one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up in our podcast today. The we're coming into the third Sunday of Ordinary Time as we film this, and Pope Francis in 2019, he uh, released a motu proprio that was called Aperuit Ilis, an apostolic letter highlighting the Word of God in the church and naming the third Sunday of Ordinary Time as the Sunday of the Word of God. And so the goal there is simply to, to give the church worldwide a theme, you could say, for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time, uh, to refocus our attention on the importance of the Word of God. And it, sure. is, it is worthwhile doing because it is so easy to take for granted uh, the fact that we have the Word of God. I brought today, just as a show and tell, <laughs> um, a Catholic study Bible. There's, of course, any number of of uh, types of Bibles that a person can buy. I'm fond of study Bibles for anybody because the difference here is that the study Bible is going to have the text of the Scripture, but it's also going to have extensive notes. This one has extensive notes, but it also has maps. Yep. So... It's so often the case, I think, that people 
are put off, perhaps, reading the Bible itself because they have a sense that, well, I won't understand it. I won't know what it means. I won't know what it refers to. If you use a study Bible, you will. It's very easy to read the text and then look at the notes and understand in a much deeper way what it's referring to, what it's talking about. Um, so I, I highly recommend study Bibles. But to look at this as a, as a what, as an item, as an entity, as a phenomena, you could say, a person could make the argument that I'm holding in my hands the most valuable thing in the world, in a way. Um, because think of it, if, if we had to get rid of every other thing, let's say I was, I was told I can only keep one thing in my house, what ought it to be? Well, one could make the very strong argument that it ought to be the Bible, because here are the words of God. If I had no other source for them, definitely this would be the thing. Now, of course, these days we can get the Bible. Oh, we can get the Bible on our phone, on our iPad, everywhere. And uh, there's a sense in which, because it has become so ubiquitous around us, uh, that once again familiarity breeds mm -hmm. at least forgetfulness. So it's important for us to develop within our life a discipline or at least a regular schedule or some kind for sharing the Word of God. Uh, families could easily do this. You could have a Bible near the dinner table and read a little passage of Scripture before the meal. The kids would love to do that. They would help mm -hmm. read the Scripture. Uh, so, you know, as we celebrate this, um, this third Sunday as the Sunday of the Word of God, we can recall to mind the, the great gift that it is for us to have God's words, the inspired words of God, so available to us and so helpful to our lives, and maybe uh, recommit ourselves to some form or fashion of, of constantly reading the Word. Um, priests and deacons and even some lay people these days, religious, pray the liturgy of the hours every day. And that is a steady diet, you could say, of, of the Word of God. Uh, but if you're not doing that, you know, think in the average family, if you're, you're going about your day, but where do you encounter it otherwise? If you go to Mass each day, well, you encounter it at Mass. A very small piece of it, so to speak. But where else would you encounter it unless you do it yourself? That's right. It's amazing to think about how things have shifted. You know, you talk about technology. I mean, Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a Year. Mm -hmm. You know, this is sort of the virtual oh, right. study Bible of, of today's world. Right? Yeah. You know, and so you... Um, you think about some of the some of the resources that are out there, Hallow, Exodus 90, you know, all the apps and things that we have now. I remember the iBrievery app when it came out. It was like, yeah. oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And so uh, it's amazing what's there. Now see, we're going to have to get Adam to, to pay us because that was a great little plug there. We, <laughs> we slipped that Exodus plug 90 in. plug in we're, there. That's pretty good. We're helping you out, Adam. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. If, if people remember, Adam Minihan, who was the former host of Tulsa Time, <laughs> has now gone to work for Exodus 90, so we're, we're you helping go. you out. You I, I did want to read one little passage, though. This coming, comes from the Second Vatican Council, the document called Dei Verbum, mm -hmm. 
the Latin title, which in English is rendered Divine Revelation. And so one can find this in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and it, it uh, explains the connection for us as Catholics between the Word of God, the Bible, and the Church herself, and the Church's teaching, and the authority of the Church. And the Council Fathers wrote that sacred tradition, that's tradition with a capital T, so not votive candles and rosaries and those things, but the authentic teaching of the, of the Church, of the Magisterium. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. That's a gorgeous image. The written Word of God that we have in our Bibles is the, how does it say it? speech of God, put down in writing under the breath, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God, which is entrusted to the church. And by adhering to it, the entire holy people, united to its pastors, remains always faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. So that's the advantage that, that you could say, or the gift that Catholicism has, is precisely that we have the Bible, but we don't simply have the Bible. We don't think that God intended for every person to be their own interpreter of the Bible. We have the Bible, and we have the church that gave us the Bible. And the Bible and that church, her pastors and the teaching of the church, talk to each other and inform each other. And it is the church's main task, its main mission, to guard the deposit of faith that is contained in the Bible— but the Bible was written under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but 2,000 years ago, mm -hmm. so that it doesn't foresee every question that would come up in the lives of people going forward, and thus the church living and being kept alive by its sacraments, by the Holy Spirit, is continually able to go to the Word of God and to find the proper answers to the questions that men and women have today. So one of the great gifts that we have that we can lose sight of. Absolutely. Sometimes it's just even taking an opportunity to just read a chapter a day, you know, opening up, you know, starting with the mm -hmm. Gospels and just, you know, not necessarily even going to the daily readings as, you know, they may be daunting, but just working, you know, one chapter a day, you know, through the Gospels. And I think what, what will help people is to to uh, not approach reading Scripture the same way they approach reading a novel. That's right. Because when I go to a novel, I'm trying to get through, <laughs> or, or a study book, a textbook, I'm trying to get through as much material as I can quickly and efficiently. Uh, when I go to read Scripture, what I ought to think in terms of is amount of time. Mm 
That's right. How much time do I have and want to dedicate to some period devotionally reading, let's say, the Gospels? Uh, let's say that I have 20 minutes. Okay, it doesn't matter how much of the gospel I get through in that 20 minutes. All that matters is that I want to spend with God 20 minutes reading his word. It may happen that I sit down to read the word for 20 minutes and the very first word leads me into prayer. Sure. And I don't read anything else. Yeah. You know, um, one of the prayers I pray every morning, uh, one of the Psalms, uh, begins, Oh God, you are my God. Sometimes I just get stuck on that, just repeating that over and over, Oh God, you are my God. And I don't even ever pray the whole Psalm. I know it by heart. But I pray, Oh God, you are my God, that those words by themselves resonate in me for a particular, whatever the reason, the Spirit knows, on a particular morning, to where I run out of the time that I've set aside for the prayer just with those words, and then I have to move on. That's fine. Uh, that's what we mean by ruminating uh, over the Word of God. We use that word commonly about a lot of things. A ruminant is an animal that has that extra stomach that is able to, uh, the cow is the, the obvious ruminant. The cow chews, eats grass, chews it up off the ground, swallows it, but then brings it back up That's right. and chews on that cud, and then it goes to a different stomach where it is ruminated. And so we do that with the scripture. We bring it back. We don't just read it once and we're done. Uh, we bring it back and we use it devotionally because God will speak to us through it. So those are all uh, themes and thoughts that, that can take place in our hearts, our minds, our families on this third Sunday of Ordinary Time. I think that's an excerpt from one of uh, Father Kerry Wakulich's homilies on cows, I think, probably. Well, because he has his own cows, <laughs> that's it right. may be. That's right. <laughs> but anyways, well, there's a there's a lot going on. We just sent a busload of right. high school-age students to the March for Life. Yes, high school-age to adults. Yeah, to adults. And being an adult now, I have profound admiration for those adults who went on the bus with <laughs> the high school kids. Because in high school, you're still equipped with your own energy. But as you get older, <laughs> yeah, you lose all that. <laughs> as you get older, it's like a snakeskin, you just shed it away. But it's like 22 hour trip on the bus. Uh, and then they get to Washington and they spend a day or so of going to different sites in the capital just to see those sites. But then there are other activities around the March for Life. There are other activities than just the march that are arranged, prayer activities and so forth. Uh, the march has tried to reach out into the country uh, and, and spread it to different dioceses, including our own, with holy hours, virtual holy hours. So I'm going to do a virtual holy hour this morning, let's see, tomorrow morning at 3 in the morning uh, here in the Chancery Chapel. And it's a way for all of the dioceses to be sort of represented. Yep. Uh, we've been able to send groups of people every year. Usually we've sent 
multiple buses, more than one bus. Yeah. This year it was just one. It'll be interesting to see uh, the effect of the post-row age on the march itself. Uh, one of the things that we celebrate now is the fact that we're in the post-row age. Right. Age Roe versus Wade was recognized finally by the Supreme Court as being an unconstitutional law, a law that was unjust, and corrected. But what they did was not to, they didn't go as far as we wanted them to go, which is to recognize that abortion itself is a horror and should be ended as a legal entity, but rather they recognized that these kinds of uh, really controverted questions should be handled by the people and their state representatives in the states at the local level. So basically they said, no longer is there a national law, you states have to work it out yourselves. So the battle for life, the battle for a culture of life is still with us, but it's much more now on the state level. Uh, we perhaps experience less of the less of the contentiousness of it in Oklahoma because this is one of those states where there's such a large majority of people who recognize the dignity of human life uh, and who are willing to vote in a way that that sure, protects yeah. life. But yet we expect, we fully expect, that that battle will come to us also. Uh, and so at the legislature, you know, we're, we're sort of gearing up for that because all kinds of money comes in from outside of the state, from outside of the states, uh, to push abortion as a legal entity in those various states. And so it's hard to compete with that. You know, you putting if you put millions and millions of dollars of ads on the local airwaves, uh, then people are are formed by those in ways that they don't even recognize. So, To those that aren't as familiar with the March for Life or maybe some of our younger viewers, why, Bishop, why, why go to Washington? Why travel all this way mm -hmm. uh, and go to Washington to march? Why, why would you, why would you do that? How is that effective or how is that um, a movement in the, in yeah. many dioceses as you were talking about many campus ministries, I'm sure St. Mary's college station, you guys sent buses. I'm sure um, I know many campuses that have done uh, that work. It's always young people, you know, that yeah. where you see the buses typically, but well, we actually didn't in college station. We didn't. Oh, send, really? Yeah. We didn't send big buses of people because we concentrated on the state rally. Gotcha. And there was always a big state rally in, in Texas. But but that's sort of the answer to your question. The idea is to rally, to, to pull people together, to galvanize attention on an issue. And in this case, sure. the theme this year for the march is um, every woman, every child. I think that's the, the theme. And it evinces a the title of a book that came out years ago that was called Love Them Both. The title of the book was Love Them Both. And that's the, the point that we're making every year with the march is to galvanize people together, to galvanize attention, particularly the young people, because they're going to be the future, 
to help them see that legalized abortion does not serve women, and it certainly does not serve children. Uh, it, it coarsens our national life. It causes us to be a nation that even in the world was a, was a, um, a pariah in a sense, mm-hmm. because we had the most um, unrestricted laws regarding abortion as almost anywhere else in the world. Uh, abortion right up to the moment of birth and even during birth. So that um, it does not help women. I used to say this when I was talking about it, that abortion is sometimes chosen but never wanted. Never wanted. No one has ever wanted to get an abortion. Sometimes women have felt pressured into choosing to get an abortion. But even the ones who are choosing it didn't want it. If someone could have convinced them that there was some other better way, they would have taken it. But one of the things that I learned in uh, doing post-abortion healing retreats for 19 years when I was in Texas, one of the one of the phenomena that I saw over and over and over in the stories of post-abortive women is what, what I de- determined as a kind of myopia. It's a, a type of myopia that when a woman who does not want to be pregnant and does not plan to be pregnant suddenly be, it finds herself pregnant. Now, there's so much that goes into that even, you know, the... the oh, yeah. The uh, all that happens to us when we disregard the sacredness of the sexual act in marriage, but um, when that happens, a kind of myopia, a kind of a closing down of her natural uh, intelligence and vision, her natural ability to see options for herself and to find other ways to deal with issues in her life. It kind of closes down till all she can see is abortion. That seems like the only thing that I can do now. And she may even tell herself that, and there are usually people around her telling her that the only thing you can do is abortion. And she's shutting down emotionally over all of this so that she's not really able to think carefully about what that means for her and what that's going to mean for her future. And then the cruelty of it is that after the abortion is done, then that myopia opens back up. And then she becomes aware of, oh, I could have done this, or I could have done that, and the regret that sets in over the loss of that child. And so uh, abortion is not helpful to women. It's not worthy of a free people. And... um, it's not necessary. We have all the options, all the other ways to handle uh, crisis pregnancies or anything else hmm. that we need now. You know, sometimes people get caught up in the the demand for uh, exceptions and you know for the uh, risk to the mother's life and so forth, and and think that the Catholic Church's position, which says that there's never ever a reason for an abortion that that position doesn't recognize the value of the mother's life. If a medical condition develops such that 
there is a risk to the life of the child and the mother, then the medical field must do everything it can to save both of them. Right. And there are some conditions that that can develop in which um, the treatment, trying to save both, brings about the death of the child in the womb, but that's not an abortion. That's a an attempt to save both lives that doesn't work in the case of one. An abortion is something that is freely chosen. The way you can see the difference is if you say to yourself, the way we're going to save the mother's life is by killing the child. If you can say that, then that's abortion. That's not what we're doing. But if we're trying to save both lives, we're doing everything we can to save both lives, but the, the child dies, that's not the same thing as abortion. And then the grief that sets in, the, the, the average time between the abortion and when a, a mother finally begins to say, okay, let me find some way to deal with this, this trauma in my life, is 12 years. That's sort of the average. We had some people who came on our retreat who were in their 70s. Yeah. You know, they've been carrying this for 30 years, 40 years. And so it's always important for the church to make sure that people know that God is ready to forgive us at every moment for anything. There's no such thing as an unforgivable sin. Some people do think erroneously, that abortion is an unforgivable sin. Partly they think that because they have such trouble thinking of how can I forgive myself? Hmm. Uh, if I can't even forgive myself, how could God forgive me? Well, God is greater than we are, huh? Yeah. And God does forgive. I saw just miraculous um, healings of people on these post-abortion retreats which are simply signs that the Holy Spirit is ready to forgive, ready to work in a person's life. Mm. So don't wait. You know, we have post-abortion retreats in the diocese here. Uh, if you know someone who is in need, don't wait. You know, have them come. Uh, so those are the reasons to rally is because the law was tearing us apart as a country uh, and because it's so unnecessary. And so for... Many thousands, tens of thousands of people, even 100,000 or more of people to come together is a great sign. Mm -hmm. uh, the media had to consciously avoid showing it. But even that, today, you can't, not, you can't hide something like that. We have the Internet, and everybody's got a phone camera. And Half a million-plus people. Right. You can see it. Marching in Washington. Uh, I've gone to the march myself, and the enthusiasm that's there, and particularly among the young people, was always very uh, inspiring. Yeah, so you mentioned you talked about overturning Roe v. Wade, and so I think a, a common, common thought is, okay, overturning Roe v. Wade, you know, we understand what that means, but but what is next for us after that? How do we how do we as a church, how do we as a community continue to promote life, support life? Well, I would I'll I'll say a couple of things. So to to you know start at the broadest, at the widest <laughs> angle, so to speak, uh, is to recognize that God has created us male and female for the purpose of marriage. And the act of 
the marital act between a husband and a wife in marriage is a sacred reality. It is something that God himself has willed and designed. But when we try to create a culture that allows us to use that act anytime we want, under any circumstance that we want, uh, apart from marriage, then we're going to see consequences. Not consequences that God in heaven is throwing down at us, but consequences that are natural to what happens in the marital act. Often a baby is conceived. So we've created this contraceptive culture, which in part is designed to make this possible for people to use sex in a casual way. But sex is not intended to be used in a casual way. It wasn't designed by God to be used in a casual way. So that's sort of the broadest outline of it, is that it's important for all of us to focus on the virtue of chastity in our lives, to develop that virtue within our lives, to live it, because chastity is the right use of our sexuality. And chastity would be the answer, ultimately, to the problem of uh, abortion. But then, so here we are, we do have this culture. Uh, and so uh, how, do we, how do we deal with problem, the problem that comes up when someone is pregnant and not ready to be pregnant or not willing to be pregnant? We have always had that problem. That's not something new. It didn't start happening in the 60s. It's new. It, it's always been with us. And we've always handled it through the way that we ought to, through charity, through recognizing that this child has a right to life. This mother has needs and needs help. Let's surround her with what she needs and help her uh, to give birth to this child, help her to raise the child. We have a, a cultural norm, and I don't know, at least in the United States, I don't know if, how wide, widespread it is, that recognizes that if a mother and father need to place the child that they have with someone who can raise the child because they themselves can't, they're not equipped or, or not able or ready, then that can happen. We can make that happen. There are ways to make that happen. So th those are sort of the responses. So where does it return? It returns to the state now. The battle returns to the state in terms of the laws but also the need for people in the various states to make sure at the level of the legislature that we have whatever programs and whatever kinds of funding are needed to help women who uh, have children, to help families who have children. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah, it's always, uh, it's always one of those things where um, the power of prayer mm -hmm. is just so real. Um, and I think oftentimes we... Not take it for granted, but we we don't think about um, the impact we can have on someone's life. And when you talk about those healing retreats and the opportunity for people to, to actually go and mm -hmm. and receive God's grace, God's love, and to be healed, um, you know, power there. I used to use a thought experiment. So to, I don't know if it should be called a thought experiment, but a thought process for people. I would do these um, these little workshops on post-abortion healing. And one of the things I would say, so that the average person in the pew can be part of this healing process, 
uh, one of the things that I would ask people is to think about yourself with a group of your friends out for dinner, and one of the people in the group is post-abortive, and you don't know it. If, if within that group the topic of conversation turned to abortion, by the end of that conversation, how would that person feel? Would they feel like this is a group who I could open up to and they would help me? Mm-hmm. They would understand the, the pressure that I was feeling, the confusion, the trauma that I was under, and they would help me to find healing? Or would they feel like, man, I can never tell any of these people because they will throw me out? We want it to be the first. And so for all of us to do sort of that examination of conscience that recognizes, look, legalized abortion is a terrible thing, and when we see politicians uh, using it in using it in paltry ways just to get votes or something, to to maintain political power, that's really ugly and and horrendous. But the people who have had abortions are people who are hurting. They were hurting then and they're hurting now. And when you think of the numbers, the millions of abortions that have happened in the United States, there are a lot of people who are hurting out there. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for us to be, you know, each of us to be sort of those outreach arms of the church to, if we encounter them, help them to find their path to healing and forgiveness in the Catholic uh, life to absolution. Uh, from the sin of abortion. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're out there and you you have that, you're carrying that weight, please reach out to us. Carrying that weight or know someone who is. You yeah. know, it's often the case that that uh, someone you know, friend or family member, mm-hmm. co-worker or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, um, any other messages for all those who are marching? Well, they're, they're out there now. Uh, hopefully the weather will warm up out there also because that's the that's always been the challenge with the March for Life in Washington is oh. it happens in January. It happens in January because that's when the Roe versus Wade ruling came down. We have our march in the in Oklahoma in like June, so that's mm-hmm. much better. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of kind of hot. hot in Oklahoma, June, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, so you know, let's pray for our our uh, group of people that are out there on the bus and all those. I mean, there's usually hundreds of thousands of people there. So we want to pray that everybody has a safe time and then a safe trip home and that God continues to move our hearts, move the hearts of our nation so that we can become a nation that truly respects life. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us. This has been Tulsa Time with Bishop Condorla. My name is Derek Lissy. We hope you have a good rest of your week. Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma.